Today's episode is sponsored by Okinarts of Seattle. Okinarts offers vintage Japanese textiles for adventuresome sewists and quilters. The shop specializes in gorgeous yukata cottons that are hand-dyed and traditionally used for making summer kimono. The fabric patterns range from classic geometrics in indigo and white to bold lyrical motifs in vivid colors. As a Walshy Naps listener, enjoy a 20% online shop discount with the code NAPS20, that's N-A-P-S and the number 2020, until August 4th, 2019. Thank you so much, Oaken Arts. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 146 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about quilting as an art form with my guest, Denise Schmidt, a former graphic designer and graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design. Denise Schmidt began creating quilts in 1996. Intrigued by the rich historical nature of quilts and inspired by the beauty born of necessity, Denise adds her distinctive aesthetic sensibility, clean, spare lines, rich color, and bold graphics to this rich art form, and has won acclaim from the world of art, design, and craft. In addition to designing and making quilts, Denise is an author, a fabric designer, a lecturer, and a teacher. Her studio is located in a historic textile building in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Denise Schmidt, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here with you, Abby. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you too. So I would love to start, if you don't mind, just by hearing a little bit about what you're working on right this minute, what's on (laughs) your work table, and what is in your mind or consuming your thoughts as we are sitting here. It's a Tuesday and it's the afternoon, sort of what is going on in the studio of Denise Schmidt? Well, um, one thing that's, I have a quilt up on the wall that's actually for me. So I started it um, not that long ago when I had a little bit of a space, a little bit of space in the calendar. And then, of course, as things usually go, it's fallen by the wayside, but it's it's still there anyway, so... Um, sometimes they have to get taken down and put away and then I completely forget about them. So I'm hoping actually that I can finish that up. And then the other project that I'm working on is, um, rethinking the selection of solid colors with free spirit. So, um, they're, they're rethinking their whole assortment, um, in general. And you might know also that that Tula now has sort of her edited selection of solid colors. So I think overall they're kind of reducing their total offering and some I'm just drilling down on the solids that are in my my modern solids group and hopefully tightening things up and maybe mixing making some new colors. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I'm wondering what goes into selecting solids. That seems like a hard task. I mean, it seems like a wide open task, but also, yeah, yeah, I don't know anything about how one goes about selecting a palette of solids. Well, the, I've never been one to be happy to put into any box, no matter what it is, no matter how big it is. (laughs) So when this opportunity first came up, it was really hard for me to you know, pick 12 colors that you know, were sort of a complete offering. And that was one reason that we ended up with 75. Oh, because, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I would rather, you know, it's I'm not going to choose one orange and just use that one orange over and over. I And I teach this in my classes if I'm using an orangey red in my quilts, I'm going to tend to want to use five 
in a you know similar hue, but with little variations um, in those. So I'm more interested in you know this group to fill the void of orange red than to just pick one. That's really hard for me. Um, so it's it's a bit of a challenge to narrow this down even further. Um, well, it's not. I'm ready to not have 75, <laughs> um, but it's 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 always hard for me to kind of to 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 edit out. I think it's that's one thing about doing minimal work is um, it seems easy from the outside viewpoint, but because each choice that you make has so much more importance, um, it's actually a lot harder right? And to I, make those choices. I think that, you know, that's the mistake people make right? when they walk into a modern art gallery and they see a Rothko or something, right? And it just looks mm-hmm. like two squares. Right. And they're like, oh, oh I, I could make that. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah. in some cases, they, they maybe they can, you know, and, and do a perfectly good job. But anytime you're sort of, for me to say, these are the colors, end of story, period, um, that sort of rankles and all these little alarm bells goes off, go off in my head because I don't, I don't like to make proclamations or limit myself in any way. Do you know what I mean? Like I always like to have those options open. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, I'm always on both sides of the fence a bit about use these colors and use any colors. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder a little bit about your relationship with commercial fabric in that way. Right. Because, um, you know, this is a product that you are creating to sell to the commercial fabric world. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's really, obviously, it's an important thing to, to make a living. Um, And you've, you've made a living in a lot of different ways. Um, You know, over the course of these many, many years, it's been over two decades that you've been involved in the quilt world, but I also think you you've been fairly well known for having pretty spare or kind of utilitarian uh, ways of working. You know, you're not necessarily known for having the fanciest sewing machine, for example. I mean, what is <laughs> yes. your what are your what does your sewing machine look like right now? I have a thirty. Well, it's probably like over thirty years, maybe I don't know. Um, a really old brother industrial that I've had it's not a antique or anything but I bought it new um and I've had it quite some time and all it does is go backwards and forwards but it's very dependable and um I've never and you're right I've I've never been a gadget girl I sort of I grew up sewing my mother made clothes for us kids and I learned how to make clothes so you know I was familiar with a lot of the tools that were around but she didn't make, you know, she wasn't a quilter. And, um, so I wasn't that familiar with all the specialized gadgets that go into quilt making. And, and I, I do have conflicts with making product. Um, I mean, quilting is, is the ultimate sort of upcycling or it's an opportunity for upcycling. And um, I've always wrestled a bit with the idea of putting more stuff out there when we don't necessarily need more stuff. And and at the same time, I'm fully self-supporting. So it it is a challenge to think about, you know, how do you make a living if this is what you're doing full-time um, you know, how do you do that and feel good about putting stuff out there and putting your name on things? And um, it's a, it's, you know, it's a hard line. Sometimes I feel okay about it. Sometimes um, I just feel like I, I, only, I just want to make quilts. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to make products, and I would love to be able to just, you know, declare that I'm going to use up the fabric that I have 
and never buy anything new or only use recycled stuff. But then I would need to go out and find a job <laughs> too. So um, it's never settled really easily with me. And, and I think to some degree it, I'm also a competitive person, oddly enough. So when I see some of my colleagues, it seems like they have it really figured out, you know, all the gadgets and add-ons and the kits and the, this and the, that, uh, and then I go, Oh, that's how you're supposed to do it. But I'm still muddling along in my own way, but all the same, it's how, you know, it's who I am and I have to, I have to sort of honor that aspect of myself too. Have you? And maybe someday I'll figure out exactly the right track to be on so that I'm not mm. always going back and forth in my head. Have you been approached to be, you know, a Bernina ambassador? No, nope. <laughs> no, I haven't. And would you say yes to something like that? I mean, where um, they give you a machine and you promote the machine and do some teaching and you know what I'm saying? Where they give, yeah, give you the fancy stuff? Sure. Probably not right now. Um, I wouldn't mind having a long arm. Mm-hmm. I've never, I don't think it's, I could take on another task um, in terms of the finished quilts that I make or all the other stuff. So, but it would be fun to be able to play on one. But the whole promoting and marketing thing is, is not my favorite aspect of what I do or what any of us have to do as creative entrepreneurs. So to, to add on another um, marketing program <laughs> for the sake of a machine, I think I probably would say no. Right. Right. So if one of the long arm gamel or handy quilter or something approached you and said, sure, take this and then use it and talk about us, that trade-off would be hard and maybe it would be better to just finance it on your own. Yeah. Or, you know, unless we could negotiate something that was palatable for me. Right. But it would be nice to have one because you don't actually have one. No, I don't. I've always outsourced all of my quilting from the beginning um, with, with Amish ladies out in Minnesota who I um, – you know, as you said, this was like back in 1996 or 1995, and in the back of a quilting magazine, there were advertisements for Amish hand quilting. So, the person that I contacted, Julie Tabay, was is based out of Rochester, Minnesota, and she would drive the work to one of you know 40 or so women that she had quilting for her. So she was not Amish herself, but she was sort of the middle person and made it feasible because otherwise, you know, the Amish ladies don't have telephones. So it was, it would be hard to um, do all the logistics. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. And so how does this work? So you draw the quilting lines that you want with pencil and then, or something like that. And then yeah. they hand quilt over your lines and then she drives them out or you you ship them to her in a box and she drives them out and then how long does it take them to actually do the quilting it depends on the time of year so um in the summer they have more chores to do around the house or out on in the farm you know to do with the farming so it takes longer for them to do the quilting because they have less free time and in the winter, they will have more time to do quilting. So it's generally anywhere, anywhere, I figure, anywhere from four to six or five months. Okay, per quilt. Mm-hmm. Okay. And is it, I don't, I mean, is it okay to ask how much it costs? Is it affordable to, for them to do this? Well, they, they, so what was great about working with the Amish person, you know, for me as a, as a, entrepreneur sort of starting up this idea was that the Amish were well-versed in being their own cottage industry. And um, one thing that they do is they charge by the amount of thread that they use. 
So, and it is directly correlates to if a, if a quilt is heavily or intricately quilted, it's going to use more thread versus one that's more simple in design is going to use less thread. So the more time they spend, the more thread they're using. Um, but I think it has something to do with um, not with their belief system of, of not being prideful. I, I'm not exactly sure how it correlates, but rather than being paid per hour, they prefer to be paid by the um, amount of thread. I see. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And this really sets you, I think, apart in a lot of ways in today's sort of quilting scene because like when you walk the the aisles at QuiltCon, you know, what's really striking is how densely quilted so many yeah. of the quilts are on the long arm. And long arm quilting has become, you know, really a uh, a big part of modern quilting and the quilts are, you know, I mean, I was standing next to a woman who was like, they're quilted within an inch of their lives. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, they're really stiff with quilting and um, I think it can be very beautiful. Um, but for sure, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody would argue against that, but at the same time, it, it is a style and it's a style yeah. that you have not espoused because of this choice. Yeah. I mean, even when they're hand quilted, I, I tend to, I mean, I like the quilting lines to be um, within, you know, not more than two inches apart, certainly, um, on the hand quilting. I, I prefer that they were about an inch and a half to an inch apart, but it has a different effect when it's hand quilted versus machine quilted. And I, I do think that really dense, um, you know, like those lines that are the width of a pencil apart, that's kind of popular right now. I think it's a trend. Um, and I think it's because a lot of people are doing their own long arm quilting or even, you know, just quilting with a walking foot or whatever. And because we share all our work on social media, you know, it's really easy for these, these styles and trends to rise and fall in popularity. And I, I do think that's I, I saw that too, that there's a lot of um, kind of show. It's almost like it is show quilting in a way. And that's, some people really love to do that. I've always been more interested in patterns that are a little bit more invisible or th that are not the star of the show, <laughs> but that they, that play a supporting role in the quilt. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And do you buy new fabric for the quilts that you make or wear? I mean, I know you make quilts with the fabric you design, and that plays a role toward marketing the fabric, obviously, and you probably also really like the fabric that you design. So there's two roles there. But, um, but beyond that, you know, that specific type of project, for the other projects, do you buy fabric? Are you dyeing fabric? Are you using I, commercial I fabric, painting fabric? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't dye fabric because I'm not set up for it here in the studio. Um, and that's, again, it's another step that's involved. When I started making quilts, I, I bought everything commercially. Um, and at retail, usually, um, once I started rolling along, I bought solids from the manufacturers because I was using more of that in quantity. And at the time, back in the late 1990s um the prints was that hard. were on the market were less well, than the solids <laughs> in shops were hard were hard to find oh yeah you know mm -hmm. they had really limited selections even though at least the shops that i had access to and um though the manufacturers had a bigger offering available they weren't in the shops so i would order bolts of that at a time and I tended to buy fabrics um, that felt anonymous. So, you know, sometimes I would use vintage things that I found at flea markets if I was lucky. But it, it was it's hard to depend on those um, because you have usually a limited quantity. So the way that I was designing quilts back then was, you know, they were mostly solids. And the I tended to choose prints that I could sub out 
as needed. So they couldn't be things that had a lot of personality or, do you know what I mean, that that the design depended on. Mm-hmm. They I needed to use prints that were a little bit, you know, that they that weren't identifiable as a particular designer. So most of those ended up being sort of Civil War reprints or um, sometimes the vintage stuff. I mean, the feed sack reprints that were available at the time were in very specific bubblegum kind of colors, so I didn't usually use those. And the Civil War stuff was had a more interesting palette, so I would gravitate toward those. Anything that was small um, or red like a solid from a distance and um, were the kinds of things that I was using. So there's, you know, when you, when you talked about that divide between, um, you know, doing things for commerce versus doing things for art, I mean, the, the quilts in a way that I started out making, I made for resale. You know, I wasn't in the quilting industry per se. And I only, because it, it at the time... Um, it was very specific and I found, I did go to quilt market one year to sort of scope out what, what was out there. And I, I just found it completely overwhelming. There was. So wait, what year was this? Was this mm, back when you were first getting started? You mean? Yeah. Yeah. It was probably around, um, I had just hired my first full-time employee. So it was probably around 1999. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Oaken Arts of Seattle, and the founder of Oaken Arts, Patricia Bellier. This is Patricia Bellier of Oaken Arts in Seattle. And what can folks find in the Oaken Arts online shop? Oh, Abby, in the online shop, we sell vintage Japanese yukata cottons. So what that means is we're selling cotton that was hand-dyed for summer kimonos. Our fabrics are 20 to 60 years old, and I sourced them from all over Japan. There's the traditional indigo and white that you would expect. Then there's lovely lyrical florals, sometimes really outrageous patterns, so Japanese. So everything we've got is cotton. So that's what you'll find online. And so do you go to Japan, like, periodically? How often are you going? Well, I get it to Japan two or three times a year, but that's not how I buy my fabrics. It, they're very hard to find, and I'm scouring the internet. I have just over 30 different sources in Japan from top to bottom. So it's very hard for me or anyone else to get to Japan and find this. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So how long have you been doing this? I bought my first bolt of Yukata cotton about 10 years ago, but the online shop I've had for four years. Wow, that's great. And how did you be, like initially learn about these? This seems like such a specialty type of fabric. I bumped into it in Japan, and I didn't know what it was. I brought some back. No one could tell me what it was. But on a future trip, I found some more. And I'm just a quilter. I'll cut up anything and sew it together. So even before I knew what it was, I was sewing with it. I see. And you just loved the pattern and the texture and just the way it worked. I love all of that. I also love the color. Because it's hand-dyed and every color is made in a big barrel, it's like so luscious. It it almost radiates. It's very different than um, today's commercial printed fabrics. People can also come to Seattle. You have a small in-person presence as well. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, the Okanard shop in Seattle is in the lower level of our home, and so it's by appointment. There's quite a few more things in the shop. We have vintage kimono wools. They're museum quality. Most of them are ecot woven, kokeshi dolls, shibori jackets that are great to wear with jeans that are just delightful, kids' kimono. There's about a 1,000 bolts of yukata cotton there. I believe the largest collection of Yukata cotton outside Japan today. Wow. Okay, great. And where can we go online to check this out? Oconarts.com. And Ocon is spelled O-K-A-N. 
Thank you so much, Okanarts. And now back to my conversation with Denise Schmidt. Okay, because you first, like your first quilts, you know, you kind of launched at a furniture trade show, correct? Yeah, so they were, right. I was marketing to interior designers um, primarily and, and architects and stuff. And and I ended up getting jobs for high-end retail establishments like Saks Fifth Avenue and Henry Bendel. Um, and that made sense in retrospect because the designers needed to have the right project and client. And, and they also needed to see you at this show a few years in a row before it really stuck in their head that you were available as a resource. So those quilts had nothing to do with the quilt industry. Right. You know, I was just um, making quilts that referenced early early quilt designs and traditional methods, but that were, you know, in a palette that was interesting to me, or um, sometimes they were sort of pared down versions of, of traditional designs. But you were basically making a, a high-end home decor product. Yes for the decorator community you know for yeah right for the furniture kind of yeah right yeah exactly for like home interiors um and that was the beginning um i mean the very beginning right was a gift the very the very very beginning of the introduction to quilting for you was a gift for a friend um actually yeah i did well i had made a, a couple of quilts um and I was working as a graphic designer when I first moved to Connecticut. And I was, you know, had gone back to school as in my late 20s. I had gone back to art school. Um, my first career was in the performing arts. And um, so after I graduated, I moved to Connecticut because of an old boyfriend. And um I was working at a children's book publisher and got really good at Barbie pink. (laughs) So it was not, it wasn't a job that felt creatively fulfilling. Um, It paid well, but it was a little bit frustrating because it it wasn't why I had gone back to school. It was a day job. Yeah, it it was was a a day day job. job. Mm -hmm. So I was still looking for something to do that felt more expressive of who I was. And I I happened to have friends who were selling furniture at this particular trade show. So, and, you know, a series of, you know, what was going on in my life specifically at that time, I think all those things kind of came together to fuel an interest in quilting because, you know, the nostalgia of um, the idea of the quilting bee or barn raisings where people in a community got together to help each other out seemed really appealing to me. It was before the internet, so I was living in a place where I didn't know a lot of people. And my boyfriend at the time was a fiddle player, so I got introduced to this um, Appalachian old-time fiddle music and <laughs> started learning how to play the fiddle and and I always had been a dancer so I really loved social dance and the and the dance form that went along with that kind of music and and even though my experience and interaction with with it was fairly limited to me it's it, it exemplified this idea of um it's okay to be an amateur at something. You know, all the people that I met who were playing instruments, some of them were doctors or lawyers or all these other things in life. And they really played just because they loved it. They weren't interested in becoming performers. They were doing it because they really loved the music and wanted to keep it alive. And there were so many correlations for me between the music and how people learned it. You know, you didn't read music to learn it. You went to a fiddle festival and you heard this guy from Arkansas played this tune that you knew how to play, but he played it slightly differently. (laughs) Um, Or you had never heard the tune before and you went home and 
learned your own rendition of it, and it might have been slightly different than that Arkansas version. So you had these regional variations of the same tune that developed in much the way, in the same way that quilt patterns sort of had their regional variations, or in the same way that a quilt pattern would change from one woman's output to another, just based on the fabrics that she used or how she put the blocks together. And the idea that, you know, somebody would make a quilt to use for their own home and to, you know, to decorate their home or to give as a gift, you know, this idea of making art or, but a usable object, not something to hang on the wall, but a usable object that beautified their home or, you know, that made use of leftover fabric scraps, all of that sort of combined with what I was experiencing and learning about this musical form um, <laughs> and came out as this idea of, you know, making quilts. Right. And so <laughs> that sort of became your why, you know, like yeah. everyone kind of needs a why and, mm-hmm. um, and a why can be really powerful and drive you forward for many, many years to come. And absolutely. Yeah. So you had the why, um, and, you know, maybe your why was a little different than what got other people necessarily into quilting, but, and maybe it was similar. I'm not sure. But anyway, <laughs> you could, so you kind of came into it through that and then created these sort of pieces that, as we said, were for the home deck market for interior designers and were reinterpretations or you sort of saw in old quilts and kind of the mixtures in the piecemeal way that they were presented um, some kind of specialness that was ripe for reinterpretation in a modern context. Yeah, I think in particular, the, the quilts that I really loved were ones that you know weren't precision made so a lot of the newer quilts that I saw in in either the quilt show realm or the quilt industry realm um those are really about you know all everything matching up and being so precise that and whereas I would occasionally see pictures of um, quilts where nothing matched up (laughs) or the colors were so strange. Those were the ones that really excited me. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes more utilitarian forms, although those never really lasted. So there, there weren't a lot of photographs in books. And again, this was pre-internet, so it was harder to come across images of things, but um Finally, you know, there's African-American quilt, um, utilitarian type quilts. And then there was a there was a book of a show that had been at the Whitney in the 70s that was put together by two art collector curator type people, not quilters. So they had been going around collecting quilts that appealed to them at thrift stores and flea markets Um that were a bit more odd and, or, you know, that would never have passed muster to get into a quilt festival or a quilt show because they might not have been made with that precision or, um, you know, they weren't show quality quilts. And the quilts in that book really sort of sparked my imagination because, or it was a breath of fresh air. Some of them, you know, had that feeling. Of course, Roderick Kirikoffi now has his book of 20th century quilts, and it's a gold mine of those quilts all brought together. And I wish I had had that book back then, but maybe if I had, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have started on this journey somehow because part of the, part of the drive back then was to show the people that I knew these glimpses of quilts that I thought were amazing, you know, either from either because they showed so much restraint or because they were just so loopy. 
And because it was harder to find those around visually, my idea was to make quilts that embodied that sense in some way and, and get my tribe of designer friends to, to love them as much as I did. Mm-hmm. Right. That was the goal. Um, and so, so you started out there and how, so when you said you went to quilt market, you went to quilt market a year or two in, and what did you say your perception of it was at that time? And have you been back? So was it, <laughs> was it over, what did you say it was overwhelming or was it, was, it what yeah. was it? Just visually overwhelming, like every square inch of everything was covered with stuff and it was print on print on print and it just wasn't my aesthetic. And um, I was really looking, I guess I was looking for sources, more reliable sources for fabric. And I, and I, cause I didn't understand then that, you know, collections came out and were basically printed once and then weren't available anymore. So that was one reason why, you know, I would do designs and maybe would want to make sure that I could always get a particular fabric, but because of the nature of the, the textile industry for the quilt industry, that's not how it works. Um, so it was kind of a scouting mission to better understand, you know, how these fabrics are made and how they're available and, and all of that stuff. And yeah, it was visual overload. I still feel that way when I walk quilt market, it's, it's a lot to look at all at once. Um, okay. So you've gone back to seemingly to promote your free spirit fabrics, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And when it came time to actually produce your own fabric line, um, was that a mixed emotion? I mean, to ju- to then jump in and be involved and, you know, I mean, I guess we've sort of touched on that already, but I mean, yeah. I guess in what way does it serve you, right? In order to, to have your own prints? Well, it was very exciting, you know, that, that doing that first collection, was a thrill because obviously I love fabric. I had always, you know, had gone fabric shopping as a girl with my mom. So, you know, to, to be a part of it was, was really exciting. And, um, you know, to be able to, to bring my aesthetic to fabrics and then have them on hand (laughs) to use in quilts was, was really great. It's, it was also different in the sense that, you know, a lot of the patterns that I design for people to make at home, they're a little bit different than the quilts that I started out making. So I had to find a new vocabulary of designs that could accommodate using all the prints in a collection. Um, Cause that would, that was more prints than I would have normally used. So there was a little bit of a conflict in terms of, how I normally had or how I had been going about designing quilts to designing quilts that were for promoting a whole fabric collection. And I think I found, you know, a happy medium in doing that. Um, But it's, you know, sort of keeping all of the different parts of me going um, by getting into the quilt industry has been, you know, a bit of a learning curve especially in the beginning, but I was really excited about doing prints and, um, it's fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a fun process. So, right. And it, and you know, it scratches the graphic design itch perhaps. Exactly. (laughs) You know, cause that you do have formal training there. So there's something nice about returning to that. And, you know, I think, um, maybe you starting out outside of the industry. I know you said like, um, you know, you didn't, you felt like you didn't have to behave. (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder if you still feel that way, like in some way, like you don't really have to follow the rules. Well, I think I have more confidence about not following the rules these days than I did in the beginning. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I don't have a lot of patience ironically, um, for reading instructional books, even though I've written a couple. 
<laughs> and I've written a lot of individual patterns and I think I'm pretty good at it, but I don't, I usually am, I'm that person who likes to look at the pictures and then figure it out. So the way that I learned quilting, I never had taken a class. Um, I took, I did take a workshop with Nancy Crow, um, but that's less about the techniques of quilting um, than it is about, you know, form and composition kind of stuff. Um, so all those techniques and stuff, I just figured out my own way of doing things for better or worse. <laughs> and it, there were times when I was worried that I would be found out. <laughs> People would figure out that I really didn't know anything, but I, at this point I have more confidence in what I don't know and how that serves me. Um, sometimes I think the more, you know, the harder it is to get to things break done. out of. Yeah. 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 No, I hear you. Um, but the, you know, the shadow of the, of the quilt police can be quite, <laughs> quite, you know, menacing. Um, but I think, you know, I also pretty much, I never, I've never really entered a juried show and certainly I would not have done that way back when there was, you know, there was no modern guild or whatever that might've been more accepting, but I, one, I've never, I've never just been felt the need or the desire to be in a competition with my work in that way. So I avoided the quilt police or, you know what I mean? I think I knew early on that it wouldn't have been accepted. And so why put myself through that? Right. Um, so your quilts have never hung. Have they hung at QuiltCon? Only the first year when I was the keynote speaker and they did a an exhibition of my work. Right. But you haven't entered to be juried nope. in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, you know, part of that is I don't always get to make quilts just for my own sake. They're usually, you know, I'm making and designing and making quilts for patterns or I'm designing and making quilts for a book or I'm designing and making quilts for clients. And to me, those that doesn't seem like the prelude to an entry mm-hmm. in a show. Right. And how many client quilts do you end up making in a year? Do you have, and these clients, these are, are these, you know, um, quilts that get hung on walls? Are these quilts that get put on beds? I mean, what kind of, and are they um, still interior designers who are commissioning or are they private clients like families or, so talk a little bit about your client, (laughs) client work and who they are and what ends up happening to these finished pieces. Um. Well, all of the above. So I I do work with designers. I haven't actively marketed to that world in quite some time, um, mainly because once I got sort of pulled into the quilt industry, that became really time-consuming. And so I just sort of fell off from marketing my finished quilts. Um, but luckily I've been able to continue to get, um, commissions regardless of not marketing. So they can be, it can be individuals who contact me. Um, I had clients come to the studio today who are local and they commissioned a couple of quilts last year. And then, and I'm not even sure how they found me to be honest, um, and then came today and, and purchased a quilt that I happen to have on hand. Um, but I also get emails from interior designers who have known about my work for a long time. And some, some designers I've worked with many times over the years. Um, others, you know, it might be the first time and they just happen to have the right client. So, Okay. And you also do a good deal of teaching. Um, I do. And you you travel and teach. And then yep. do, you, do you also teach from the studio or no? I do. Um, and this year we, we only had a couple of classes in the studio. It's I have to 
you know, it's a big old building and it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter. <laughs> so that leaves me the spring and the fall. And um, sometimes it feels easier to to book classes on the road. I mean, I do get a lot of requests for that. And so if I'm away even once a month, it, it feels harder to, you know, book more weekends in the studio too. So I try to minimize my teaching to, you know, no more than once a month. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes less because just even being away for three or four days can throw off my sort of routine. Right. And um, if I have other, if I have sort of bigger projects that, that need a certain amount of time or space, it's hard to get the momentum back if I interrupt it too frequently. Right. And tell us a little bit about like your typical day when the momentum is flowing. So when you're back in your studio space and um, not not on the road, you know, um, I think it's interesting to hear what a day, you know, a day in the life typically looks like during the work week, right. um, just so we can kind of sort of take a peek into what what is the what is the life of Denise Schmidt's work work day look like um well I always I'm always battling myself I you know I do better when I come in and do some sewing or you know creative work first but that rarely happens because there's usually some pressing email that needs to be replied to or um you know, booking this or that or somehow sitting down and turning on the computer that tends to take most of my day. So, and I don't, I don't understand it to be perfectly honest, but it's, and you must know yourself, there's the, the demands of the outside world and just the day-to-day -day aspects of running a business, you know, it takes time. But yeah. um, you, I literally have to like shut the computer off and put it in mm -hmm. another room with all my other, like the phone and the computer and like yeah. shut the door. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> you know, and create like a physical barrier and it can only happen for, you know, like 40 minutes and then, yeah. and then yeah, that's and it, you, have, you know, that's it. I know. <laughs> and sometimes that's all you need. Yeah, that's um, enough. And it may be once a week. I mean, I'm not talking every day, you know, like right, that's as much right. as I get. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, th I think, and part of that is social media, you know, it, it has really changed. When I started, um, there was only the phone that was the interrupter to, you know, the creative part of the business and you, know, you had to really work at contacting people and getting in touch or you know and even the process of marketing was so different it was about making a postcard and mailing it out it's a very different sort of feeling and um I'm having some you know I can get on I can go on to post on Instagram and an hour later I'm like, why did I come on here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm I'm trying to figure out right now how to have the balance of being in there, communicating with people, and having those relationships, seeing what other people are doing without it sort of consuming my so much of my time or sucking all my energy right. out of me because. Right. That I find it can happen too, where it's like, oh, well, somebody's done that. <laughs> somebody's, yeah. oh, somebody's done that. It's defeating. It can be defeating for sure. And it just feels yeah. like, oh, yeah, like somehow by viewing it all, you've done it. And I right. don't know. And there's also um, a feeling of like, it's easier to watch it than to do yep. it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's sort of like a procrastination method where you're like, I'll mm -hmm. just watch this. Mm -hmm. um, because it's frankly, just less work than having to get yeah. up and, you know, get out the stuff and start. 
and to make the messes, you yeah. know, part of the process of making, especially if you're, you're trying to do something different or new. And I have been on, you know, in this place for a while where I really want to kind of move in some different directions and it's always going to be messy. It's yeah. always going to be like, oh, no, that doesn't work. Yeah. And I have to, you know, keep trying or dive in. And all the, you know, stuff that comes up in your head in that process, um, there's something about the Instagram social media world that makes us forget that that stuff is part of the process. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to go through it. There's just no shortcutting it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to sort of work my way through that. And also the last few years, I don't have any um, part-time or full-time employees in the studio. I have freelancers only. So that's changed the rhythm. And I really like it, but I do have to be work harder at being disciplined, like that idea of coming in and starting with sewing and not turning on the computer is hard for me to do. But I am 10 times happier um, when I can make that happen than when I'm not. So I think one thing that people might be surprised about is that, you know, I'm doing it all <laughs> right now, other than a few, you know, outsourcing my quilting and um, I don't know what else there is. You know, I, I'm pretty much doing everything. I answer the emails, I ship the packages unless there's a lot and then I get help. But usually it's, you know, a pace that I can do. I do the bookkeeping. Um, I clean the studio. Yeah. You're a one I water man, the plants. You're a one-man band <laughs> or one-woman band. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So it's, and that's good, but it's, it's also, yeah, it just means less, less time for the pure creative stuff. Right. No, I know that words, that song very well. It's, um, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a lot. And, um, and do you listen to anything while you're working or is it quiet? Um, usually I have the radio on because, um, you know, and this is another one of those, there's so many layers of things that need to be f sort of fixed or t tweaked that I, I tend to not ever address them. One is speakers. So I have a, an old turntable that has speakers and radio, and I tend to just put the radio on. We have an amazing local radio station called WPKN that's all volunteer, and there are some really crazy, really good people who are programming on that station, and, and I love to listen to their shows because they surprise me every time. I don't like hearing the same thing over and over. I just you know, tune that out. But flipping records over every 20 minutes, how did we ever do that? Oh, I don't no. know. It just doesn't make any sense. And my computer's not hooked up to speakers, so I don't like to do Pandora or Spotify. So it's either silence or the radio. And um, I also wondered about you your identity is a, is what i would identify as a secret celebrity and here's what i mean by a secret celebrity and um and i am in no way denise schmidt but i do have this um tiny sense of it when i go somewhere like quiltcon so like you know, I live in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and in Wellesley, I am like a mom, a stay-at-home mom. That's my identity. <laughs> like I go places, and that's all people know me as. Right. Um, but when I was in Savannah for QuiltCon, in this tiny space, I would like walk somewhere, and someone would hear my voice and know who I was. <laughs> And it was the oddest thing, you know, to be recognized on the street um, for some other identity, the identity of a podcaster or, as, right. you know, a writer or something like that. And for somebody to just call my name, um, so strange. And, yeah. um, but again, I am not you. You have this in a very different 
way from me. So I'm wondering how that feels, right? Like I'm imagining in Bridgeport where you are, um, maybe people don't know so much about your quilting worlds. Maybe they do. No. Some people do, maybe. There's a few, but but not so much. And none of my friends, you know, my closest friends, none of them are really are quilters. So they don't even know most of what happens in my life in terms of any recognition or, right. you know, So you go to the grocery stuff. store and you go to yeah, CBS. Yeah, I'm completely and anonymous. You're totally yeah. anonymous. You're just like some lady. <laughs> or I like to think I am. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they're like, oh, there goes that girl with the funny glasses. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, maybe it's her with the messy hair again or whatever, right. but beyond that. Right. Um, but when you're in certain places, right, certain specific places, you are someone. And that's an interesting shift, right? Like, yeah. and certain other places, like you're like, you know, the founder of the modern quilt movement. And like, people <laughs> are like, I want your autograph. And can you sign my book? And you know, I mean, it's a really big deal. And so what is that like? What is that like for you? Well, it's, you know, it's weird, because you, you know, we're all just normal people. And I think, and I'm an introvert, so I'm not always good at, um, you know, there's a performance me, you know, when I'm teaching or up, up in front of a lot of people, I can switch into performance mode, but it's not a one-on-one -on -one thing. You know, it's easier to do that to a group of, you know, like be entertaining to a group of people than it is on a one-on-one -on -one situation and I always feel this responsibility to somehow be entertaining and witty and you know to say something meaningful <laughs> but that doesn't really happen most of the time because I'm just me um so I worry about disappointing people you know that I'm not somehow a magic human being but um that I am just a normal person and, you know, I don't think people really are expecting that. I think they just, you're a familiar presence, just the same way that, you know, you're a voice on the people who know and you're a part of their life or their day, you know, however often they tune into your podcast. And so they have a relationship with you that is meaningful for them. Right. And, you know, all you have to do is, is sort of take that in. And, um, I, I just, I have to remember that, you know, that nobody's expecting me to be anything that I'm not. Um, but I put a lot of pressure on myself to, to not disappoint <laughs> yeah. If that makes any sense. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's probably, I was reading recently um, a biography of Robin Williams, and um, obviously Robin Williams, way famous, um, yep. before he passed away. And, you know, I, I think that there's something incredibly fortunate about not being way famous. Um, in other yes. words, about being able to be most of the time just a regular person. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And just thank, thank God I didn't stick with the theater stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like I just think being able to be have your fame and then to have like many, many other circles in which that's not the case. Yeah. Um yep. is probably a good a blessing. Um Yeah. Yeah. You know, because you get both worlds. You get the best of both. Exactly. Um, it just seems like it's really, really hard to not just be able to go to CVS. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think that would be – no wonder some of some celebrities just seem to get weirder and weirder because yeah. it is a strange, you know, perspective to, to be in if everywhere you go you're recognized and – yeah. I think it's too hard. I mean, yeah. I'm, and I'm not so sure quilting can do that to you, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Let's hope not. <laughs> Hasn't happened quite yet, but yeah. 
We'll see. Um, all right. I want to make sure we get to your recommendations. And so um, it's springtime here and you, it sounds like, are spending some time in your garden. Yeah, I am. It's the best time to be out there. There's always, you know, a flurry of activity that has to happen in the beginning of the season um, to make sure that the rest of the season, you know, sort of unfolds without extra work happening. So weeding and all of that stuff. But I, I had an event in my week, my garden this past weekend. So luckily I got all that, the heavy lifting done. What kind of and event? Now I can, what kind of event did you have? It's just this, we have this little, um, garden group, sort of everybody's an amateur and we get together either to visit each other's gardens or we go on little field trips. And so I had the, the first event of the season, so I got all my weeding and kind of structural things done. And it's only May. So nice. I have the rest of the summer to just enjoy. Mm-hmm. The do you have a favorite flower or a favorite something growing? Mm, well, right now the alliums are I love allium. Yeah. I do too. I posted a little video tour on Instagram of my alliums and, um, and they dry. So, Did you ever dry them? They're amazing dry. Yeah. Well, they they keep their structure for yeah. so long, which is really nice because so they have cool. such a presence in the garden right now. But I'm not so much a flower person. You know, I'm more of a foliage person or just, you know, having a nice structure to the garden um, and making sure that it, you know, stuff happens through the, the seasons, but that it, you know, it always feels... Um, there's always something to look at, even in the winter. Um, nice. I'm more interested in, in figuring that part out. It's a really interesting design problem because it's so different from anything I've ever done. And you have so many parameters that have to be met. Mm-hmm. So, Especially in New England where we yeah. have a short season. and Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, and then we talked already, one of your recommendations was your local radio station, which we already yes. spoke about. And Good. then um, your last one, which I honestly, in all my many years of podcasting, have not had this um, recommendation, but it might be one of my favorites, <laughs> which is doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, we don't, our culture doesn't really accept that too much, but somebody's, said that something to me recently about, you know, looking out the window and dreaming. And I I have been doing a lot of it lately. And it's partly because I've been in the stage of wanting to not necessarily, you know, I'm not like starting over doing anything completely different, but I'm, I'm feeling the need for some changes. And part of it is I'm, I just turned 58 this spring. Um, And I think it's inevitable as we age to to think differently about what's ahead and, you know, how do we want to be spending our time and what is my future going to look like and how will I make that happen in the time that I have left. And um, so having time to just daydream is really important to me and I guard, I guard my time zealously so that because daydreaming feels like you can't it can't be something that you go oh okay from 10 to 11 (laughs) I can daydream I feel like I need to have a whole day sometimes so that there isn't a start or end to when it might happen but it's really restorative um and I think it's really a critical part of the creative process where, you know, I might not be having a big output right now um, in terms of things that I'm making, but I, I know there's a lot going on <laughs> inside yeah. right now. And just being able um, to sit with that. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to be patient with it, but I'm trying. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. I think that's really important and a good reminder that yeah. we shouldn't admonish ourselves for sort of seemingly doing nothing in the bad sort of way. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I know. I think we're re- we're so programmed to be doing and producing. And, and in some ways, I've gotten so good at the daydreaming lately that I'm like, okay, enough. <laughs> <laughs> there are limits. Maybe you're but... taking this too far. <laughs> but I'm, I do believe that somehow intuitively, you know, we go through these stages. And I'm trying to give this the, the time and space it needs. Um, I, I don't know what, what, what will come of it, but. There it is. Well, Denise, thank you so much for taking the time to (laughs) talk with me for the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for asking me. And um, I'm excited to uh, always talk to you and um, with your listeners. And I hope... I hope it's enjoyable for your audience. Yeah, it was really enjoyable for me, for sure. Okay. And you've been listening to the Washing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, washingapps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. This episode was sponsored by Oaken Arts of Seattle. Oaken Arts offers vintage Japanese textiles for adventuresome sewists and quilters. The shop specializes in gorgeous yukata cottons that are hand-dyed and traditionally used for making summer kimono. The fabric patterns range from classic geometrics in indigo and white to bold lyrical motifs in vivid colors. As a Walshy Naps listener, enjoy a 20% online shop discount with the code NAPS20, that's NAPS, N-A-P-S, 2-0, until August 4th, 2019. Thank you so much, Oaken Arts. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.